Mars is going to do. Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan. Here as always with Luke Savage. Hello, everyone. Did you see, by the way, that just a couple of minutes before we started recording, the news dropped that Neera Tandon isn't going to get that government job? Turns out, after all was said and done, uh, uh, Twitter does matter after all. I mean, I'm not I'm not normally in favor of people getting fired or having opportunities lost because of things they've tweeted in the past. But, you know, I, I am a nuanced thinker. <laughs> I mean, the thing that's very frustrating about the whole sort of meta debate, you know, that's swirled around this uh, this prospective nomination is that, I mean, among all the things you could criticize her for, I mean, she's done far worse, right? <laughs> like, this became a debate about mean tweets rather than, you know, union busting or some of the donors that uh, she courted as uh, the head of one of the most important liberal think tanks in America. Uh, it became a meta debate sort of about all that. Although I actually do have the sort of further meta meta take that uh, a lot of her tweets kind of were a problem and that it's not simply just a case about, you know, pointing out the the hypocrisy of people who complained about, you know, snake emojis or whatever, uh, now standing by this. I actually do think it's worthy of condemnation that the head of something that bills itself is the leading, you know, one of the leading progressive actors in uh, on the Washington scene conducts themselves that way on online. And I think that is worthy of uh, criticism. Well, you know, they got Al Capone for his tax evasion. <laughs> I think that principle applies here. I do think that they should do this for all annoying online personalities. Like everybody on Twitter who kind of sucks should have like a government job presented and then taken away from them. Like Noah Berlatsky should have to endure this humiliation. I think the other important element here, which I'm by no means the first person to point this out, but it's it's worth noting in the context of this conversation. I mean, all this debate happened just as the Biden administration was saying, we can't give more than 30 million people a raise because some unelected person that no one had ever heard of before last week says that that's against the rules, even though uh, we are perfectly within our rights to use executive authority to overrule this, I think it's kind of a 20-year-old convention of the United States Senate and, uh, you know, and legislate this minimum wage increase, but we're not going to do it. You know, people have been having a field day comparing the White House press secretary's tweets on the Tandon nomination with the stuff uh, that she's been saying about the minimum wage. And I think, again, that is absolutely fair game. When you see how hard these people will fight to get one of their own a job uh, versus, you know, how uh, how hard they'll fight to get millions of people a raise, tens of millions of people a raise, it's uh, it's pretty instructive. Now, one rumor uh, that's swirling around, this is kind of one of those one of those rumors that's at least substantial enough to be reported on by Politico. But there's a rumor that's been going around, which suggests that the Biden people actually knew that Tannen's nomination would be controversial, but they decided to pick her as kind of a gesture to the Clinton world which is feeling a little bit on the outside because she's she's part of that circle obviously i don't i don't know if that's true but uh but it's interesting people have commented how strange it was that hillary clinton didn't seem to at least publicly show any support for her during all this I don't know. You, I mean, I think it's, it would be a little beneath Hillary Clinton to uh, weigh in on the appointment of OMB director. Although then again, she'd have time to endorse Joe Crowley. Uh, and her sole endorsement last year was Elliot Engel right. over Jamal Bowman. I mean, she'll lower herself out of loyalty for certain things, but I guess not other things. Anyway, folks, another example of uh, cancel culture running amok. We as a culture must do something about this. It's 
the Golden Globes on NBC. All the biggest stars from TV and film are here. Who's got the best seat in the house? Not John, not Sharon, not even Jack. It's you. And you might even win. I never believe I'm ever going to win anything. Yeah, right. Live and unpredictable, the Golden Globes, 7, 6 Central, Sunday on NBC. Brought to you by Chrysler, engineered to be great cars. On totally unrelated news, just looking at the world around us, looking at popular culture, I, I have felt fairly alienated from popular culture over the last year. And a lot of that just has to do with being in my home all the time, for there being no uh, proverbial water cooler to, to hang around and uh, converse with like-minded co-workers about uh, the, the latest goings-on in the culture. <laughs> is that is that something? Is that something you actually ever did? I mean, no. Well, maybe a little bit. You you're, you sound like you're describing like a template for like a scene in a 90s sitcom. But something that's happened over the last year is for a couple months, culture stopped because people didn't know what to do. People were making it up as they went along. They weren't sure how long the pandemic would last. They weren't sure if this was simply a delay in culture for three weeks or four weeks or two months, or if there would need to be a radical reconstitution of the way that culture is disseminated and received. And I mean, I, I still don't think we have the answer to those questions, but culture did eventually continue. And it's continued in a kind of abstract, ethereal way. A lot of Zoom events, a lot of conferences and art events held online that you can you can watch on your phone. A lot, a lot of Twitch streams, you know. Oh, yeah. Incidentally, thanks to everybody who watched our first ever live stream on the weekend. It was a lot of fun. And also our also our also our first uh, our first Twitch stream. Uh, very, very fun. Very much enjoyed it. Hope we can do it again soon. But some of this hit home for me this week because the Golden Globes happened and I did not watch it, although I saw you know, just just some ambient hum about it. First of all, it was like a big Zoom meeting. All the categories were Zoom meetings, so they had all the nominees there. Were they physically in a room? I mean, how did they the do hosts, it? The hosts, Amy Poehler and Tina Fey, were physically in a room. But then it was like the DNC, although not nearly the same level of technical proficiency as the DNC. And and mu- much, le- much less exciting, I'm sure. I mean, you joke, but I think it probably is much less exciting. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, unless Michael Bloomberg spoke, I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> Apparently, there were a lot of technical glitches. One of the winners had their sound off for a little while. Various problems like that. But I saw also that the ratings for the Golden Globes were something like six and a half million viewers, which was down something like... 68% from last year. That's pretty remarkable. And I think some of that has to do with the fact that it was like a big Zoom call. Nobody wants a Zoom call. Even if uh, Bill Murray and Sasha Baron Cohen can be seen amongst the squares, I don't think people want to be part of a Zoom call. But moreover, I think a lot of it has to do with the movies themselves, which are obviously of, of varying quality, as they always are. But it seems to me that very few of the nominees, movies like uh, Nomadland or Mank or uh, The Father or The Trial of the Chicago 7, apparently there was a movie nominated in the musical or comedy category called Music, which was directed by the pop star Sia. I think that's how you pronounce it, S-I-A. Uh, I'm not a child. I don't know what the actual pronunciation is. But it was a widely condemned movie about autism a film that many autism advocates really regarded as harmful. I can't really weigh in on that. I don't know the issues at play, but that's just an example of an extremely poorly received film that got a Golden Globe nomination nevertheless. It seems to me that these movies aren't necessarily the ones that are capturing the zeitgeist. 
And it's hard to tell what the zeitgeist actually is these days. I mean, movies like The Trial of the Chicago 7 and Mank, these are Netflix productions. They're made and distributed by Netflix, which has no obligation to release its viewership numbers. A movie like Nomadland is also going to largely be seen on streaming services, as, as are most of these things. Box office reports, TV ratings, these are reported by third-party enterprises. But streaming services have no obligation to release that data. So basically, we're in a situation here where these things can be made and marketed directly to the voters of these awards bodies without any need for a zeitgeist, you know, without any need for an audience. It's possible that five people in the world have watched Mank, but <laughs> but we don't know, and it doesn't actually matter. It's, so it's, it's like if you took the Democratic primary process and everything's a caucus, or actually, no, even, it's probably even worse than that. It's like if you took the process and you cut out all of the primaries and caucuses such that only superdelegates got to decide and there were, no, there were no debates. Like there's no, there's absolutely zero kind of deliberative process here. It is literally just like a bunch of sort of elites handpicking the winners or the nominees. Well, absolutely. And I don't necess- I don't want to be one of those people saying, well, why aren't they awarding the popular movies? You know, why isn't Mulan getting a Best Picture nomination or, or whatever? I don't necessarily want to be like that. But in the past, because these movies have had to play in front of audiences and there's been some level of accountability for their success or some visibility of how successful they are, there's been a sense of whether or not they're actually tapping into any visible zeitgeist. Now, this movie Nomadland, which is the front runner, the director of it has just wrapped production on another movie that is a property of uh, Nomadland's parent company, the Walt Disney Company. <laughs> Perhaps you've maybe you've heard of it. <laughs> She's just made a great big Marvel movie called The Eternals, and they've already announced her next movie, which is a Western about Dracula. And it seems to me that Nomadland, like, it doesn't actually matter if anyone sees it. What matters is that Nomadland is the run-up. It's building her legitimacy. It's building the perception of her legitimacy on the way to her becoming a Disney house director. Uh, And again, there's no audience that has any say in this. And so I feel a bit alienated, but I mean, the the one thing that's undeniable about this is the Golden Globes had 68% fewer viewers than they did last year. <laughs> like, <laughs> like how, how can this system sustain like itself? The, the, the establishment is losing legitimacy. It's a house of cards <laughs> well, is what I'm saying. It'll all fall. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you, I mean, you said just a moment ago something like, you know, there there is no zeitgeist because they're by- bypassing the audience. I actually think it's it's perhaps something a little worse than that. I mean, I'm not up on the finer points of the. I don't want you know. I didn't watch the Golden Globes. And I, no, I don't really. I, I don't know. Uh, listeners will be very surprised, as I'm sure are you. You know, and I, I'm not. You know, I'm not really up on these movies. I think Trial of the Chicago Seven was the only film that you said that I've heard of, apart from Mank, which is just one that you've done numerous tweets about. The type of Will Sloan tweets where I I really can't tell like at what level the irony is operating so I'm not sure what I'm supposed to think about it but I I actually think it's something worse than what you said it's not it's not that there is no zeitgeist because because there is one it's just that the zeitgeist is now created like top down this kind of bottom-up process or any kind of role for audiences or for small c culture to deliberate and kind of form tastes and and 
decide what's important and why kind of at all autonomously from the studios that are making these things and from the, you know, the massive uh, apparatus of critics and, and other people whose job it is to create the discourse around them. And even really before people have had a chance to think for themselves about like whether they like something or why they like it or why they don't like it or whatever, you know, there are now like these cultural narratives, these grand narratives about entertainment products that are now available without you even having to think to yourself. It kind of reminds me of the way that, you know, for decades with the rise of uh, opinion polling in political media, like just dominating coverage of, of political media and elections specifically, like oftentimes the public, the electorate, the voters, they're just sort of being served their own. They're being told like, this is what you think by this class of experts, like before they've actually had a chance to come to some kind of decision at all independently of that. Like there's a, an increasingly top down process that helps kind of vet who's in, who's out, you know, who's hot right now, who's surging, who's down, who's had a gaffe, you know, all the rest of it. And I feel like what you're describing in entertainment is uh, is very similar to that in some ways. It's not it's not that there is no zeitgeist. It's that the zeitgeist is increasingly a kind of astroturfed one. And also by virtue of being an astroturfed one, I mean, to mix metaphors a bit, it's also a very fluid one. I mean, it's one that kind of changes based on the needs of the news cycle, based on what story can you tell in relation to the news cycle about something's relevance, <laughs> which, you know, I think on balance, if that becomes the guiding impulse of, you know, entertainment criticism and kind of, you know, how TV shows and, you know, popular cinema and other things like that are written about, uh, that's probably mostly not going to be for the best. Well, there's only one discourse that comes from the top down that I respect, and it is Pick Flick. That's right. We are talking about 1999's <laughs> political allegory, Election, starring Matthew Broderick and Reese Witherspoon, a much requested topic for us. Student, counsel, president. Oh, me? Oh, no, I, I don't know anything about that stuff, Mr. M. And, I mean, besides, that's Tracy Flick's thing. She's always working so hard at yeah, it. Yeah, no, she's a real go-getter, all right. And she's super nice. Yeah, yeah. But one person assured of victory kind of uh, undermines the whole idea of democracy, don't you think? But, Mr. M... I mean, that'd be more like a, a dictatorship, like we studied. But, Mr. M, there's... Paul, what's your favorite fruit? Pears. Pears, good. Okay. Let's say... Oh, no, wait. Apples. Apples. Fine. Let's say all you ever knew were apples. Apples, apples, and more apples. You might think apples were pretty good, even if you got a rotten one once in a while. But then one day, there's an orange. And now you can make a decision. Do you want an apple, or do you want an orange? That's democracy. I also like bananas. That was a that was a very good setup, a, a trademark Will Sloan segue there. Although I did think you were going to say that the uh, the only top down taste making respect is uh, is the kind we do on the Michael and Us podcast. <laughs> yes, we are leading the discourse. Everyone knows it. <laughs> but so I had not seen this film for quite some time, and I think watching it again, I realized I I didn't really remember much about it. I mean, for, I'd forgotten all the sexual politics in the movie, like completely. I really just remembered a handful of scenes and I don't think I had really many sort of big political takeaways from it. So it was great to uh, it was great to revisit. And I have to say, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thoroughly enjoyed it, too. I watched this movie quite a bit when I was younger, like in my early 20s, but I probably hadn't really seen it in close to 10 years, during which time I myself have become Mr. McAllister, the Matthew Broderick character. So I've been a I'm able to appreciate it on a whole new level as in, in what in what sense have you become Mr. McAllister? <laughs> oh, you know, uh, 
failed loser 30 something with a whole like whole generation <laughs> a, of people a man under with me. podcasts <laughs> yeah exa- exactly <laughs> but also a beloved teacher in many circles <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I had resisted doing this movie on this podcast for a while, despite the cries of Michael and Us Nation. I think because the political <laughs> allegory of it seemed kind of obvious. I didn't really know what else there was to say about it. But I do think there's stuff here to talk about, not least because I do appreciate the movie on a whole new level as as a somewhat older man. A quick run through of the plot and the main characters. The movie is set in director Alexander Payne's home of Omaha, Nebraska. Jim McAllister, played by Matthew Broderick, is a beloved high school civics teacher. And among his duties, he helps oversee the annual student body election and the student government. One of his most hated students, as well as one of his most technically proficient students, is Tracy Flick, played by a young Reese Witherspoon. She's a keener student, one with great ambitions in her life, perhaps to one day enter politics. And she sees becoming the student body president as a stepping stone on this ladder to success. And one of the reasons that he dislikes her is she, uh, while an underage student, had an affair with a colleague of his, another teacher who apparently fell head over heels in love with her. But unfortunately, her mother found out and it essentially ruined his life. He lost his job, had to move out of state. I mean, this section of the movie is pretty interesting when watched today. The gender politics are, are, you know, not exactly politically correct. Something I want to say about this, I want to digress just very slightly before you go any further into the plot, because uh, there are a couple frames in this movie that were absolutely incredible for me to see. When the film shows flashbacks of how, you know, Dave, uh, the teacher who's friends with uh, Jim McAllister, how he and Tracy Flick kind of became acquainted um, and how, you know, he ended up doing something uh, incredibly unethical, immoral and inappropriate. One of the things it shows, okay, is he's playing in like like a band, I guess, somewhere either in like the gymnasium (laughs) at the high school or um, somebody's basement, I think. Yeah, somebody's basement, whatever. Like, and it's very sort of like, you know, middle aged guy being try hard, trying to be cool. And, and one of the things that uh, Matthew Broderick says in his narration is, you know, that he's one of those guys who took up teaching because he never wanted to leave high school. Now, the song that he's playing in this scene, okay, is the song Foxy Lady. Like, it's very generic Jimi Hendrix cover. Um, and it just so happens that at one of my high schools, uh, there was once a coffee house slash battle of the bands where uh, this, I, I want to I set the scene for you. And I know this is a digression from the movie, but I promise you it's going to be worth it. So the teacher band went up. This is the official teacher band, like the ones who could play like very well. Uh, and, you know, they're all just like wearing aviators. Like they're just having an amazing time, like doing, I don't know, ACDC covers or whatever they're doing. <laughs> and like, you know, a lot of teenage musicians in the room, we're just in awe of these. Uh, we're just in awe of like the, their guitar skills and stuff. And then the what you might call the second teacher band goes up. Now, I say the second teacher band, I think it only included one teacher and he was the one that was not cool enough he was not allowed in the proper teacher band and i kid you not watching this performance one of the most embarrassing kind of 10 minute stretches in my life he played the song foxy lady um (laughs) and he he didn't have an instrument like he was just singing and he's like dancing around the stage you know just like this middle-aged guy doing this in front of a bunch of high school students i remember at one point a few of us tried to deal with the inherent cringeworthiness of of the situation by starting like an ironic clap along 
But uh, after like <laughs> after about like forty five seconds, that became impossible to sustain, and and, and we we had to stop. Um, I mean, so this guy, like, one thing I started to notice is uh, he started like miming various scenes in the movie The Last Waltz. You know the Scorsese oh, course, documentary. Yeah, yeah. So you know in that movie, there's a scene where like Robbie Robertson's playing guitar, and Ronnie Hawkins goes up and like blows on the guitar and like waves at it like the implication being because like because it's like such a hot guitar solo like the guitar's overheating mm. this teacher was like doing that <laughs> like he was like pantomiming the scene now i don't want to give away too many details here but uh, suffice to say uh, the description offered of uh, the dave character in the film i think could probably pretty safely apply to uh, this particular instructor and um some time ago i was having a, a conversation with a friend who attended the same high school and um and they sent me this pdf document which is the transcript or, or the record of uh, some hearing with the college of teachers where uh le- let's just say this uh, this fellow had an inappropriate relationship oh, with a student no. and, uh, and let's leave it at that so the movie literally i mean like right down to the song that the guy was playing it mirrored this uh, pretty exactly Okay, can I tell you a situation that happened at my school, which somewhat mirrors something else that happens in this movie? I had a principal who I liked and I like him. I think he's a great guy in a lot of ways, was really nice to me, did a lot for the school. Unfortunately, several years after I graduated and one or two years after he retired, he got caught in an embezzlement scandal. It had been alleged that he had, over a period of a couple of years, stolen something like $80,000 from the school's clubs fund. The, the money that the oh students... God. The money that the students pay to help pay for, you know... Uh, the, chess the, club. The chess club, the sports teams, the newspaper, <laughs> all, the, all that. And he had taken that over, over time. I mean, I think maybe he had a daughter that he had to get through college. And, you know, you, could, you can understand how somebody might do something like this. Because if somebody feels underappreciated over a long period of time if somebody if somebody feels they haven't got their due um and also if somebody can't afford to get their daughter through school they might say well you know i'm I'm kind of entitled to this and he happened to get caught on a slow news day he was on the front page of every toronto newspaper it was awful. I'm not sure what he's up to anymore, but I do I do feel really bad about him. And, you know, I think both of these stories, as well as that great scene in the movie where they're practicing their shitty bar band in the basement, point to the same thing, which is a kind of like quiet desperation that a lot of people live in. Well, and, and one you might associate with, uh, with, with middle age specifically, I suppose. Middle age and perhaps even uh, high school for some, teachers. For some people anyway. Yeah, and I suppose high school too. I will just say like I don't know much about the details of the case you're describing, but uh, based on what you said, I, I can't really have a lot of sympathy for that principle. I mean, sounds hideously unethical to me. It is unethical. There's a lot that he did that was wonderful. You know, he I'm not going to like dispute that what he did w- wasn't unethical or that what I'm going to say, like, makes up for it in any way. But like what I can tell you is he went above and beyond for a lot of the students. He was at every sports game. I remember at our school newspaper, he took it upon himself to write a sport column for us because he felt that those boys needed more recognition and you know the problem with any student newspaper is it's hard to get a good sports writer so he would write a column for us under the pseudonym of scoop davis you know he, he was always trying to get underrepresented communities from the more challenged neighborhoods in etobicoke you know he was always trying to get students from there to come to the school and work deals that that could happen so he did a lot that was good and honorable but you know the human being can be a land of contradictions at times can't it well i look 
look forward, uh, you know, when the Biden administration tries to appoint him head of the uh, OMB, I look forward to, uh, you know, your tweet storm about how, you know, ethics is a land of contrast and your former principal is, a, is, an, is an invaluable progressive leader who brings much needed experience and qualifications to the table at this difficult time. As I stated right off the top of the episode, I'm a nuanced thinker. I'm, I'm capable of seeing shades of gray. Uh, anyway, this teacher, Dave, obviously does something terrible and unethical. And something that Tracy Flick says in narration early on is, you know, she has a somewhat uh, polite but strained relationship with the Matthew Broderick character, Mr. McAllister. And she says that she feels sorry for him, that there he is year after year saying the same things, being in the same classroom, wearing the same clothes. She feels sorry for him because those are the limits of his horizons. And I was moved by this Matthew Broderick character like never before because he is suffering a kind of middle-aged malaise. You know, he's in this marriage that is, I guess, a happy marriage to some degree, or at least a comfortable marriage, but not a marriage with a whole lot of spark. And when his wife is asleep, he goes down to the basement and he pulls out from like buried at the bottom of a trunk somewhere his one porno video that he has, and he watches that while his wife is asleep. This is an important point because one thing I did not remember at this film at all is that basically none of the major characters are like there's no there's no hero in this film i mean all of his resentments all all of jim McAllister's resentment against tracy flick none of it comes from a good place like first of all he's angry at her he blames her for the fact that his friend did something hideously unethical and secondly as i think the film strongly hints at you know he resents her because he has a pretty creepy attraction to her that he sort of uh buries and this movie that he watches like uh it is a sort of like weird like high school uh locker room fantasy or something yeah the character is very cleverly written and i think matthew broderick plays him really well he's kind of opaque a lot of the times and that one moment where you see that he has a sexual fantasy about tracy flick or or the moment where he watches the high school themed porno movie these are moments that happen kind of without any further context the movie doesn't comment on them or or follow up on them it's surely not a coincidence and i can't be the first person to have noted this but i mean matthew broderick i mean ferris bueller himself playing this character can't be an accident right it's funny to imagine like you know i always imagined uh with ferris bueller's day off like a a subtext of the movie for me was always the you know this is his last hurrah like this guy's peaking you know he's peaking right now like the scene where he like pantomime twist and shout on the back of the float and he's, he's just this universally beloved figure who's completely un, you know untouchable like he's not going to carry that into the future and I, it's funny to imagine that like this is how ferris bueller ends up as this kind of like middle-aged guy who's uh you know who's resentful of a high school student and who has an unhappy marriage it's funny what we hear of his voiceover narration because through the movie he initiates a very short-lived affair with his neighbor a woman who used to be married to his old colleague before she divorced him. And we never hear his voiceover narration talking about the affair. We also never hear it talking about his sexual desires. Whenever we hear him narrate, he's just saying the things that he wants to say and the things that he wants us to hear about how much he likes teaching. And when he talks about Tracy Flick, he always kind of wraps it in this pseudo-righteous air of i always resented her because she's somebody who will who will stop at nothing on her rise think of all the people that she's gonna hurt as she climbs and crawls her way and cheats her way to the top you know somebody's gonna stop her now tracy flick is running unopposed so far in the student body election it's implied that the students regard student politics as her thing 
You know, she's kind of cornered the market on it. But he realizes that there can be a Pepsi to her Coca-Cola. He recruits Paul Metzler, played by the great Chris Klein, who is the school's top football player. Playing basically the same character as he plays in the American Pie movies. He's the school's top football player, and he was injured, so he can't play this year. So he's looking for something to do. And Jim McAllister tells him that maybe you, you should run against Tracy Flick, because we need democracy in a society. It's a dictatorship if all you have is just one person running. Paul Metzler is one of the most liked students at the school. He also comes from a great deal of privilege, and it's implied that Tracy Flick's background is, I mean, uh, probably privileged to some degree, but but not wealthy to the extent that Paul Metzler's is. She regards him with resentment, you know, this kid with a silver spoon in his mouth who never has to work for anything. But it also seems true that Paul is a much kinder and generally more likable person than her. Paul's only sin is that he's dumb and he has no idea what's going on. Like, he doesn't understand, you know, he, he gets the idea in his head from Jim McAllister that he could be president, and he's just like yeah okay i could i could be president he has, he has no sense that he's you know being used by by the establishment you know <laughs> but a third candidate emerges because paul has been dating lisa who unbeknownst to him had previously had a fling with paul's sister tammy metzler played by jessica campbell and as some sort of revenge for having dumped her, Tammy decides to throw her hat in the ring and, and run, I don't know if anarchic is quite the right word, but run... <laughs> well, like nihilist. Yeah, I, that, that's the word, a, a nihilist campaign. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but I have I have seen student elections that actually have like a none of the above like protest candidate that's exactly like that. And they inevitably harvest votes from like, you know, there's, there's inevitably a sort of like 15 to 25 percent, you know, uh, constituent. <laughs> constituency of the student electorate that you can win over to a platform that's like you know fuck this it's a sham and you know often for good reason there's a good scene when tracy flick comes to jim's office and starts complaining to him who's this tammy metzler how can she be running how, how can this be and he says well you know she got her signatures in on time and he shows her the signatures which are on like loose leaf paper with you know food stains all over it and she says what are these names Th- these are all burnouts how do these count who's this person and you know know it it seems silly to like underline all of the like political parable elements of the movie because so many of them are so obvious but it is funny that a tracy flick type looks at some of the people that she's been able to get on her list of signatures and say these people don't count they're burnouts these these aren't people who care about politics yeah i mean i guess tracy flick is somebody who i mean she believes in process she believes in the system not for any particular reason apart from it being a vehicle for her ambition but nonetheless she really does i think see it as kind of inherently legitimate and also kind of righteous, you know, a a kind of call to service, you know, which incidentally is what a lot of the kind of hollowest and most ambitious career politicians say. And like so many of those politicians, she is not above breaking the rules when it can benefit her. One night after postering the school, she accidentally tears down one of her own posters and then in frustration, in bottled up rage, tears down all the posters in the school. She covertly, under cover of night, takes all these shredded posters to a dumpster somewhere. And Tammy, seeing her do this, decides to sacrifice herself, more or less out of the goodness of her heart, to take the shredded up posters and take them to Jim McAllister's office and say, I was the one who did this vandalism. I'll be disqualified from the election. It's fine. 
Jim sees through the ruse immediately. He can sense very strongly that Tracy Flick was the one who did this, which leads to the film's final act when, having just lost his wife amidst his fumbling brief affair and angry about the unjust success of Tracy, he pockets two ballots from the razor-thin election results and declares Paul the winner with the thinnest of margins. Incidentally, uh, Tracy only wins by one vote because Paul is so dumb that he votes for her because he goes to cast his ballot and he's like, that's just too weird. I can't vote for myself. (laughs) Nevertheless, the tarnished ballots are found in Jim's recycling bin. The election results are restored to the rightful Tracy Flick victory. Jim McAllister gives the principal his resignation and becomes a proto-viral celebrity because this unfortunate incident happened to fall on a slow news day, not unlike uh, the sad fate of my own uh, former principal. Now, I don't know uh, what happened to my former principal, but what eventually happens to Jim McAllister is he reinvents himself in New York City. He becomes a tour guide at the Museum of Natural History, teaching school children again. But he does see Tracy Flick one more time during a visit to Washington. He sees her entering a limo with a Republican senator, implying that she has risen fairly high, fairly rapidly in American politics, and pointedly has risen on the Republican side. (laughs) (laughs) My first impulse was to run over there, pound on her window, and demand that she admit she tore down those posters and lied and cheated her way into winning that election. But instead, I just stood there, and I suddenly realized I wasn't angry at her anymore. I just felt sorry for her. I mean, when I think about my new life and all the exciting things I'm doing, and then I think about what her life must be like, probably still getting up at five in the morning to pursue her pathetic little dreams. It just makes me sad. I mean, where is she really trying to get to anyway? What is she doing in that limo? Who the fuck does she think she is? Yeah, we learn that she gets into Georgetown with lots of scholarships and is just kind of, you know, fulfills all her ambitions, although we get the impression, the film gives us a strong impression that she's still a very lonely person. You know, I think the movie quite correctly suggests that often people who are ambitious in this very specific kind of way, like people who are real kind of ladder climbers and and who are just very career oriented, as opposed to being oriented to any kind of, you know, less uh, instrumental goal, you know, they're often very lonely. And I think you kind of see that with Tracy Flick. I mean, she's able to be the kind of presumptive uh, student council president elect, not because she's super popular, just but just because it's sort of assumed that this is her territory. You know, she's not actually very well liked. But I think the final scene is pretty important. And, and interestingly, it does, uh, it does diverge from the book, because Jim McAllister sees her getting into this car, realizing that she's won and he's lost. And his monologue about how he's happy, you know, the great thing about America, he says, is you can always just, you know, start over. And, you know, and we see him living in this like really crummy, like basement apartment. And he's just like, has a job as a tour guide where, you know, he's haunted by the, uh, the specter of Tracy Flick. Yeah, the, 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 the specter haunting him is the specter of Tracy Flick in the form of kind of know-it-all students shooting up their hands when asked about stones or whatever else, you know, he's uh, he's talking to them about. And he's an unreliable narrator because you're never sure exactly how happy he is at any given moment. He himself probably doesn't know how happy he is at any given 
Nolan moment. The scene where he's watching porn in his basement while his wife is sleeping is indicative of that. Like, the reason we don't hear any internal monologue during that moment, I think, is because there is no internal monologue to be heard. He's compartmentalized this part of himself. You know, he he thinks he is happy. He thinks he's glad to have this stable marriage and this nice job where he teaches bright young minds. And yet there's also part of him that wants to have an affair with his neighbor and is like getting some sexual release from watching porn in the basement because his own sex life with his wife is completely flatlined. He doesn't reconcile those two, you know, they're just compartmentalized away from each other. Right. And that's why this final scene is so important because it actually does uh, kind of break, you know, his narration. Like he's unable to sustain uh, or or maintain the artifice and he's unable to kind of stand by the idea. You know, even as he as he's saying to himself, you know, I realized I wasn't angry at her anymore. You know, I just felt sorry for her. You know, realize that he's less and less convinced of his own words as they come out and so you know he hurls his uh his pepsi at the at the car and you know runs off as he gets shouted at just you know completely humiliated loser which of course he is now i do have a reading of this film uh perhaps a very literal one but i think one that at least i'm convinced of what is kind of your overall take on it how, how would you how would you kind of characterize it within uh you know the michael and us archive well one of the things that's funny about the movie is it is about student government which as the old saying goes is the most vicious form of government because it's the most meaningless and the most petty but i think the movie implies that student government is ultimately no more or less important or powerful than actual government than actual democracy both student politics and real politics are just a show that's put on that benefit a very small number of people that kind of sate the masses into thinking that that some representation is going on but as tammy metzler says in her speech do you think that whoever wins this is going to make one person happier or going to make one person better or kinder or improve your life at all we all know it doesn't matter who gets elected president of carver do you really think it's going to change anything around here make one single person smarter or happier, or nicer, the only person it does matter to is the one who gets elected. The same pathetic charade happens every year, and everyone makes the same pathetic promises just so they can put it on their transcripts to get into college. So vote for me, because I don't even want to go to college, and I don't care. And as president, I won't do anything. The only promise I will make is that if elected, I will immediately dismantle the student government so that none of us will ever have to sit through one of these stupid assemblies again. Yeah, okay, so that I think is the most important scene in the movie. This is, and we haven't talked about it yet. This is the scene where uh, the three candidates each give their pitch, you know, their speech for why they should be president. You know, Tracy Flick gives a very kind of overwritten speech where she quotes Thoreau. Uh, <laughs> she gets kind of polite applause. Paul gets up and uh, gives a really horrid speech. Paul, for a guy who's incredibly popular, uh, is just not very charismatic. You know, he, he kind of mumbles his way through it. He doesn't really look at the uh, look at the crowd, look at the audience. Well, he, he has a different kind of charisma. He has one-on-one charisma. And I think there's an implication maybe that he didn't actually write that speech. Yeah, yeah. His speech is weak because ultimately his campaign is a fraud and his heart's not really in it. He's, he's a mere tool for Jim McAllister. And then, yes, as you said, Tammy gets up and she gives this uh, speech and you know she's very much the Ross Perot of this election you know she's running you know she's running as the anti-political politician which is you know a phenomenon still with us today but was a phenomenon you know very of the 1990s 
people running as kind of none of the above candidates on on the reform ticket. And there's a difference between her and like a Bernie Sanders type because her one campaign promises to dismantle student politics altogether so that we don't have to go to an assembly like this again. Yeah, now we should be careful not to get too heavy-handed and literal here, but I do think this movie fits in really nicely with the politics of the 1990s. I think having seen it again, my impression is that really none of the characters are very sympathetic. Tammy is the only one who's, uh, she's really the only sympathetic one that has more to do with her life outside of student politics because as a queer student she really has a rough go of it um and then her parents after she gets expelled decide to punish her uh by sending her to catholic girls school which it turns out uh works out pretty well uh so she's the only she's the only character who gets a happy uh kind of redemptive arc at the end and of the three i mean if you know faced with the choice between a kind of establishment vetted candidate uh who's really just a pawn you know that's paul and then tracy flick who is just a kind of middle class striver who has a lot of kind of polish but it's really just concerned with their own ambition and then a third candidate tammy who says let's burn it all down i mean that's clearly the best option of the three I did come across a kind of retrospective on this movie, and I want to read a bit from it because I really liked how it characterized uh, the Tracy Flick character. I'll just reiterate, I don't think in any way Matthew Broderick is the hero of this film and Tracy Flick the villain. They're both villains, they're just different kinds of villains. Don't you like Broderick more, though? You know, I guess the film invites us to sympathize with Jim McAllister a little more, and maybe maybe in some ways uh, we do, if only because he's the, uh, he's the loser at the end of all of this. But nonetheless, Jim McAllister, you know, isn't any any more, you know, moral at the end of the day. He's he's entirely motivated by personal resentments and by issues, you know, within himself that he refuses to work out. Also, he's a civics teacher who at the end of the day reveals that he doesn't really believe in democracy. Yeah, he's a ballot stuffer. But Tracy Flick, I think, can best be understood in the context of the 1990s as a kind of Bill Clinton character, you know, as somebody who comes along and is incredibly polished, incredibly brand conscious. But, you know, there's not actually fundamentally a lot there. At the end of the day, uh, Bill Clinton, you know, there definitely was a political project at work there. But in some important respects, that was secondary to a type of generation defining middle class striving and and ambition that he carried with him. And and it was something he carried with him into office as well. And it's very much something you see in the, you know, the culture of uh, the Democratic Party today. I mean, you know, I just reviewed Pete Buttigieg's book. And I have to say, I definitely... uh, I definitely think there's some parallels between him and Tracy Flick uh, as well. But I liked this characterization of the Tracy Flick character from this retrospective. In her school days, Tracy Flick is political in the same holistic, imprecise sense that Burning Man attendees can be spiritual without subscribing to any formal religion. She's invigorated by the nuts and bolts of the voting process. And as is the case with all her numerous extracurriculars, she throws her entire self into running for class president. But the dirty secret about resume patterns like Tracy is that their only real commitment is to the act of staying involved. It's not like dictating lunch block policy requires a nuanced platform and still her stump speech goes heavy on upbeat vagaries over substance. She imitates the habits of studied politicians, hitting her cadences and singling out her working class constituents to score pathos points. All the while, her focus remains on success rather than any particular ideology that might take her there. Her bedroom walls are adorned not with posters of inspirational women, but with her own awards and motivational platitudes like catch a dream and run with it. And if you can imagine it, you can achieve it. So that's from a, a retrospective published in 2019 by Charles Bermesco. And I really like that, uh, that characterization of the character. As I said, I don't want to get too heavy-handed about this, but to me, the film's ultimate message is a sort of anti-political one. And I don't say that to criticize it. I feel like it does kind of capture uh, the options that were available to people in the 1990s. 
On the one hand, you got Matthew Broderick, who represents kind of the old order, the establishment, and kind of a noblesse oblige, you know, and tells himself that, you know, he's in it for the right reasons, that he's doing very noble work. At the end of the day, he's just as motivated by the personal as uh, the person he most despises. And, you know, even chooses Paul as this kind of avatar for, you know, this proxy for himself because he's such a petty person. Paul isn't running for any particular reason. It's just that he's a popular guy and he feels like, oh, hell, maybe I could do this. Maybe I could be president. If Tracy Flick, meanwhile, has any analog in the in the American political scene in the 1990s, it's definitely with, you know, the Atari Democrats, the Clintonites, the third way culture of kind of middle class striving and aspiration often for its own sake, very fluid ideologically, very opportunistic about the kinds of things that it embraces, incredibly brand conscious, uh, very polished, and very intent uh, on, on kind of convincing itself that it's there to kind of disrupt the status quo, right? I think it's very important, as this writer I read, I quoted, pointed out that, you know, Tracy does that thing that uh, a lot of hack politicians do, right? She starts like talking about all her, you know, working class roots, and, you know, she she does give a much more polished speech than Paul does. But at the end of the day, like, listen to both their speeches. They're both just completely empty. Like, they're, they're both just totally pablum, but uh, hers just happens to be more polished. And then the third poll you got is Tammy, who, as I said, I think is the most sympathetic character because she just looks at these two other options and just says, ah, burn it all down. I don't know what the equivalent of NAFTA, of the NAFTA debate would be in a 1990s high school election in, in Omaha, Nebraska. So perhaps we can't stretch this analogy too far. But that is basically my reading of the movie. You know, it's fundamentally a black comedy about how, you know, none of these political archetypes that are so familiar to us all are, are very sympathetic. There's not a lot of virtue to go around here at all. It's funny, you say that this represents politics in the 90s. Do you think it's changed a great deal? I realize that Tammy is not exactly Bernie Sanders, but, you know, Bernie <laughs> Sanders is is kind of an unusual case, isn't he? I don't know. I feel like I keep issuing the same caveat that I don't want to get too heavy-handed and literal here. This is getting into very perilous, <laughs> perilous analytical territory for me. But I guess to try and answer your question, what I'd say is a lot of these features are still very present in politics today. But, you know, having kind of spent the past few years glimpsing alternatives glimpsing real alternatives and being aware that they might actually have some chance of success for the first time in my life anyway i don't ultimately share the film's very kind of nihilistic take on politics even if it is one that i find in many ways very compelling and uh, and incredibly enjoyable to watch now watch this drive 